Hey there, and welcome to the Duncan Pentecostal Church podcast, streaming from Vancouver Island here in Canada. And however you have found our podcast, we're so glad you're here. Before we jump into today's message, just a couple things I want to let you know. If you go to our website, www.duncanchurch.com, you're going to find a couple easy ways where you can connect with us. We have an online connect card you can fill out. Maybe let us know where you're listening from and check off the option to receive our what's happening email. We send this out once a week. It's a great way to stay connected with everything that's going on here at the church and even online. Apart from that, there is a give button. So if you're feeling led, you can do that right online through our website. You can also find us on Facebook and YouTube. We are so glad you're tuning in and we are believing that God's going to do something special in you through today's message. Enjoy. My name is Ross Breitkreitz. I'm one of the pastors here. We're going to start the sermon right away, but before we do, we're going to do a little bit of an exercise, all right? And this is just not a physical. You don't have to get up and do jumping jacks, all right? Um, But what we're going to do is we are going to do a little bit of uh, an exercise in discovering how we all kind of probably think different, specifically how when we hear a word, we might... Uh, think of it and give it a definition different than how other people would. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to say a word, and then I'm going to ask you what came to mind, because every word that I'm going to say has multiple definitions that could come to mind. And then by show of hands, we're going to see how differently we think. So for example, I might say a word like banned. Now by show of hands, put your hand up if when I said banned, you thought like, Rubber band, elastic band, wedding band, put your hand up. Did you think that? Did that come to mind? Okay. When I said band, who thought uh, like music band or boy band? You thought boy band? That's so funny. No. Um, Yeah. Okay. So band is as one example. How about the word bat? Put your hand up if you think animal. Put your hand up if you think sports equipment. Okay, all right, Some way more athletes in the second service, too. I like this. Uh, okay, how about bark? Who thinks dog? Who thinks tree? All right, uh, now match. Who thinks a sporting event? Yeah, I think match, I think sport. Who thinks something that, like, starts a fire? Okay, all right, and then the last one, rock. Who thinks stone? Who thinks a genre of music? Yeah, all right. So this has all just been to see that sometimes when you hear a word, you think of it and view it differently than someone else might. We all put definitions into things, and sometimes it's in a certain context, but this is a reality. That sometimes you hear a word and you define it differently than how someone else would. And so what I'm going to do this morning is I'm going to add one more word, and we're not going to do a show of hands. But the next word that I'm going to mention is this, faith. The word faith. And I mention that word because this morning we're moving into Hebrews 11. We're going to talk about faith as we launch into this chapter. But I bring this up to address the very real reality that many of you, even in this room, may define that word differently. That when you leave the walls of a church, many people in society view that word differently than we do in this building. And I also want to challenge you this morning that you may not define faith the same way Scripture does. 
This morning, we are going to take a look at the word faith and a little bit about what it means this morning and then kind of dipping our toes into what faith can accomplish. So actually, this morning and next Sunday are basically going to work together as like a two-part sermon, but this morning we are going to look at faith. Before we dive into our passage in Hebrews 11, though, what I want us to hopefully get a sense of and understand is how perfectly placed this topic now is in the letter of Hebrews. Like how perfect it is that our author, after everything that he's written throughout Hebrews, now shifts into this deep focus on defining and discussing faith. So in order to really understand and hopefully appreciate it, let's just, I'm going to recap very, very quickly what our author has been talking about in the first 10 chapters of Hebrews. And if I can put Hebrews in a very, very quick, quick summary, our author has been working tenaciously through his writing to share this with his readers, that nothing that you do, nothing that you attempt to do, no practice that you adhere to, there is no action that we can do, no matter how religious it might look, that is going to get us into God's presence. The only vehicle that God has ever intended to use to drive us into his presence has been his grace and our faith in his grace. It is grace and faith. And our author has been using the entire Old Testament, the tabernacle, the sacrificial system. He's even talked about angels and the high priest throughout Hebrews. And he has said, hey, guys, he's been trying to draw out these themes of grace and faith to let them realize that even in the Old Testament, God has been saying it is by grace and it is by faith. It is not by deeds and actions. Ultimately, the only way. If I can just put the first 10 chapters of Hebrews into a very simple English translation that might hopefully land home for us here today, this morning, it would be this. It would be like saying, no matter what you do, no matter how much you give, no matter if you care for the homeless, no matter how much you know the Bible, no matter if you have perfect church attendance, none of that is ever going to bring you into the presence of God. It is only ever going to be the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. This has been what our author has been trying to say. Old Testament didn't do it. Jesus did. He has accomplished something greater. And it all hinges on this key thing, and that is faith. So after working tirelessly to explain this, now he dives in. And this is what he brings us to. Essentially what he has been explaining this whole time and drawing out through 10 chapters is what you can read in a summary in Romans chapter 3, where it says, no one will be declared righteous in his sight by observing the law. Righteousness from God comes through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified freely by his grace. This is what Hebrews has been explaining. And even at the end of Hebrews chapter 10, our author would write, quoting the Old Testament, to further reveal to these people that, hey, this has been on God's heart and mind the whole time. He quotes the Old Testament scripture where it says, the righteous will live by faith. All right? So once again, this is all he's been pointing. That's why it's so perfect that now he's like, okay, now we're going to talk about faith. And so we should be wondering, hey, I want to be a righteous person. 
right? We should want to be a righteous person with which in, in layman's simple terms is we want to be people who walk in step with Jesus Christ, who walk in relationship with our creator. And in order to be that and do that, we need to be people of faith. So we should wonder, what does this life of faith look like? And first off, what exactly does it mean by faith? So I'm glad you asked because the rest of the sermon is going to discuss these things. So let's take a look at real faith. And as we do, I really do hope that you're going to see a number of things that real faith is. We're going to hit points. Real faith is this or real faith does this. And I'll let you know it's not an exhaustive list. There are other things that our faith does, looks like, and accomplishes, but just being built out of our passages of Scripture this morning. And ultimately, I really do hope that your idea, your concept, your definition of faith is challenged and deepened this morning. I really pray and hope that is the case. So let's jump in. If you haven't grabbed a Bible yet, uh, there should be some of the seatbacks in front of you. We are in Hebrews chapter 11, and we're only going to cover the first like six verses, so don't panic when I move so slowly and we just start off. We're just going to bite off baby chunks and work our way through. So starting Hebrews 11, verses 1 to 2. Now, faith is being sure of what we hope for and certain of what we do not see. This is what the ancients were commended for. So, he's talked about faith. It's so important. Then he kicks off this chapter by giving us what many believe to be this description or definition of faith. Now, I've shared this before many, many times. When I prepare a sermon and I work out of my personal Bible, I use the NIV translation. And I think it's even one of the older translations because they're often updated. I think mine is like circa 83 or something like that. And so that wording that I just read, that's from my NIV translation where it says that it is faith is being sure of what we hope for and certain of what we do not see. But there are, I want to respect, that there are many different translations with many and much different wording. So some of the different wording for this opening verse is this. It says faith is the confidence or the reality or the certainty or the substance or the assurance of things hoped for. Now, I found this kind of interesting simply because we do know there are various Bible translations and they word things differently, but across the board, like some of the bigger, more well-used translations, they stick pretty close to one another, and when there is a variance of words, there's maybe like two or three words that are commonly used in rotation in those sentences. Why are there so many different words used here? Why is there so many different words used to try and get this point across? Well, the reality is this. English translators have been struggling to capture the full weight and breadth of what is being communicated when the author is talking about faith in this passage. What I discovered this week is that the original Greek word that is used that we translate into all these words, confidence, reality, certainty, substance, assurance, it is a Greek word, hypostasis. Hypostasis is the Greek word that we're trying to capture with these words. And here's what it means. It means the underlying state or underlying substance. Now listen to this the fundamental reality that supports all else. The fundamental reality that supports all else. Our author is saying faith is the fundamental reality that supports everything else 
in our lives. Like the reality, not just a way of thinking, not just a conscious awareness, the fundamental reality of everything that supports our lives. Is that what your faith is for you? Is that what your faith is? Is that what you think about when you think faith? Do you, when you think faith, do you think, oh, that is a, 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 a way of thinking that I ascribe to? Or do you think of it as the fundamental reality that you are building your entire existence upon? Because this is what Scripture is trying to say. And when I realized that, I quickly decided I don't like my translation anymore, right? Because it says it's something that we are sure of right? Sure. That sounds, I'm sorry, that sounds so wishy-washy. It doesn't carry the same weight and substance as the fundamental reality that supports all else. Scripture is trying to tell us that real biblical faith, it's so far beyond just an intellectual set of beliefs and principles. And I would even venture to say that this is exactly how the original Hebrew readers of this letter would have understood faith when they read this verse. This is how they would have understood it and defined it. You see, because this past week, that was one thing that I wanted to do as I was preparing for the sermon. I asked myself, and I was curious, I was like, what, how did the Hebrews who were reading this letter originally, how did they view faith? Because I understand that today, right, if I read that word faith, I would read it differently with a background knowledge and an understanding or presupposed assumptions about what that word entails. I would read it differently than many other people would, probably maybe different than some of you in this room. So I thought to myself, I wonder what did the early Hebrews think when they would read that word faith? So in order to discover that, I had to go and look and study the Hebrew Scripture. And if you don't know what I mean when I say that, I simply just mean the Old Testament. Because here's something else that kind of dawned on me, and like I know this, but I never really thought about it. It was really interesting, is this. What we need to realize is that when they were reading Hebrews, this was likely the only piece of what we call New Testament they had. Right? There's a really great chance they didn't have Acts or Luke or Mark or any other letter from what we call the New Testament. They would have just had a letter given to them that we now call Hebrews, but they would have just been like, oh, look, this letter came. What they would have had in order to understand these verses, they would have had stories about Jesus, right? They would have had people come and tell them about Jesus. They would have had the whole Old Testament, and they would have had this letter. That's it. That's their context coming to the topic of faith. So I wanted to look at the Old Testament and see what did it tell them? How did it lead them to understand faith? And then what can it teach us about how we might be able to view faith biblically? And here is what I came to discover. I came to discover that the Hebrew word faith is a Hebrew word, imuna. Imuna. And I found it interesting because imuna actually comes from the same root word that we get a word that we've been using this morning already a couple of times. Comes from, they get, it shares its root word with the word amen. 
All right, amen has a very powerful meaning. It's a term of assertion. It's a term of trust. It's a term of faith. It's a term of belief. It's basically a term of saying, and I put this stamp of declaration of saying that the one that I have prayed to is good enough to take care of what I've given to him. It is like this confident assertion. That's what amen means. So if you were wondering, I just want to make it very clear, amen just isn't how Christians sign off prayer. It's not Christian for 10-4 over and out. All right? It is a powerful declaration of our God has got this and we place our faith in him. So in sharing this definition with amen, we have the word imuna, which means the same thing. Trust, belief, rely on, firmness, steadfastness, fidelity, and faith, but it actually still means so much more. Because if we just look at those definitions like that, we can still be tempted maybe to step back and be like, oh yeah, like it's just a set of cognitive beliefs. But what we discover is that it is so far from the truth when it comes to the Old Testament. Old Testament faith was more than just belief. Old Testament faith was inseparable from faithfulness. Old Testament faith, like you could not be a person of faith if you didn't live faithfully. That is what is showcased and shown and seen in the Old Testament. That true, real faith would lead to faithfulness. That real faith acts. That is what the Old Testament scripture would, rep, would show these people. It wouldn't be like what you'd find today. You run into someone and they'd be like, oh yeah, like, uh, yeah, oh yeah, I believe. Right? It wasn't just this little flighty like statement. It was these people believed, they had faith, and it led to faithfulness and the faithful way in which they were living. One scholar put it this way as he was describing the difference between uh, just having like a mental understanding and actually walking it out. He said, biblical faith is like a staircase. Now, you may have an intellectual understanding and awareness that there is a staircase, but until you step on it and begin going up the stairs, you won't experience the next level. There are a lot of people who, by admission, have an awareness that, that there is a real living God, but have never even stepped on the stairs. I don't want that to be any of you this morning, because real faith acts. The whole Old Testament, actually, as it talks about faith, would reveal what we know from James chapter 2, verse 17, that faith without action is dead. Real faith needs action. I actually discovered this week how the message translation puts that sentence, and I love it. The message translation says, God talk without God acts is outrageous nonsense. And I thought that was hilarious. And, and true, though. Old Testament faith was always showcased through faithfulness. Did you know that faith and action were so intertwined and so inseparable in the Old Testament that when people would act in ways that were contrary to God, he would say to them, you broke faith with me. 
He wasn't saying, oh, like, oh, you lost faith. Like, you didn't believe I was still there. No, it was their actions that represented their breaking of faith with the Lord. In fact, this is exactly how God will address Moses when he tells Moses he's not allowed to enter into the promised land. So you may recall when they're on their wilderness journey and God says in order to draw water from the rock, but Moses whacks it with his stick. He doesn't do what God says. Right? And God says that that act of going against what he called him to, that was him breaking faith. Like, does that, I don't know for you, but like that is a so much greater definition of faith than what I often had, right? I often did view it as like just this cognitive decision in your mind. But here we're seeing like, no, faith is also action. Because let's be honest, Moses wasn't questioning if God existed, he'd been on the mountain, he talked to the guy. They were in communion with one another. His actions were what broke faith. Real faith acts is what Scripture teaches us. In fact, when you look at the Hebrew uh, dictionary, the word faith, because all of our words in our dictionary, right, they're given titles or they're put into a category. You're a, it's a noun or it's a verb or it's an adjective. Hebrew language, the word for faith, imuna, it's, it is a verb. In our language, it's a noun. It's like a title, person, place, or thing. In the Hebrew word, it's actually a verb. It's an action word. What I'm trying to get at this morning is that I hope you understand that biblical faith is deeper, richer, stronger than how so many people understand the word faith. And I fear even how some people in the church understand faith. To understand a little bit deeper what but biblical faith looks like. I actually want to read for you because in my uh, searching to discover how the Hebrew readers would have understood the topic of faith in the context of the Old Testament, this is a quote from, I believe it was a Jewish rabbi who wrote this talking about Old Testament faith. So someone who, as he wrote it, no faith in Jesus, but faith in the God of the Old Testament. He says, faith is a willingness to trust Despite one's doubts and through one's tensions, despite the reality of setbacks and suffering, immuna is not merely a statement about God or a blind faith. It is a trust in the living reality of God, a trust that we can rely on God even when things seem improbable and our actions should de demonstrate such a relationship. True faith acts this type of true faith that acts then leads to powerful actions as we're going to discover. But before our author even gets into listing all these, he writes another really powerful sentence. Moving into verse 3, he says this, By faith, we understand that the universe was formed at God's command so that what is seen was not made out of what is visible. Now, I have to be honest, at first, when I was like, okay, he's going off on this really strong intro definition of faith, and then I felt like going back to this point was like, I, I personally felt like it was like a weird springboard. I was like, that's a weird transition into it, but as I thought about it, and as I mulled it over, and as I studied this week, um, I just found it so cool because it's like, hey, let's just like strip everything away. Let's just go straight for the heart of it. Are you able to believe, do you put your faith in the first five words of the Bible? Right? You know the first five words of the Bible? In the beginning, God created. 
I think it's pure genius that our author's like, hey, here's what faith is. And by the way, let's, we don't have to go far. We don't have to travel deep into this amazing book. Let's just start with the first five words. What are you doing with those? And he says, and through the first five words of the Bible, we know that what has been created was made from what was unseen. It was created by God. I think this is so powerful. Now, at the same time, I want to pause and talk about this for a second because I need to respect and honor the very real reality that for many people in the church, those first five words are an issue. There are many people who are struggling. There are many people who wrestle to understand that as they look at the creation of the earth and as they look at what is taught and as we look at what science teaches and explores, there are people in the church who have been led to believe that at some point you may have to make a choice, either faith in God and scripture or science. And I want to bring this up because I want to let you know that that is not a reality, that it is not the truth, that is a lie. And if you are a person who has a deep interest in science or even in some of the sciences like philosophy, but you also want to cling to your faith, our faith, our God is strong enough that you can venture into any single one of those arenas. Our God is not scared. The church has done many people a disservice by not making it clear that you do not have to face a day where you're going to have to come to a fork in the road and like so many people want you to believe and think, you'll have to one day choose, am I going to take my brain out of my head and just cling to blind faith or am I going to go go with science or am I going to cling to faith and ignore science? That is garbage. That is a lie because our next point is real faith is not blind. Real faith is not blind, and it can venture into these arenas and study these topics. I have zero doubt that if this is something you are interested in, you won't, it's not incapable for you to find a collaboration between your faith in the one true living God and things that science is exploring. Faith-based science is not an oxymoron. I will always tell you that you must seek God first and continue to seek him and just keep that thought in the back of your mind because we're going to touch on it at the very end of the sermon. We need to do that, but real faith is not blind and there are people throughout history who have clung to their faith in God. They have made him the foundation and the reality of everything and they've built amazing lives of science up from that. Real biblical faith is not a way of avoiding reason, logic, or intellect. So if you or someone you know actually thinks that, I want you to know that that is a lie. Because here's the truth. No matter what you think, no matter what you struggle with, whether it be philosophically, scientifically, theologically, I don't want to offend anyone. I put myself in this category, but I will just say this. Someone before you or someone right now has likely wrestled with that same thought, question, hesitation. And guess what? They were someone significantly smarter than you. And they landed on an answer and they still profess Jesus Christ. I want that to be encouraging, not discouraging. 
That for all of the science and thinking that has done, for all the efforts people have made to try and declare that God is dead, they still can't. Our God is not dead. He is very much living and active. And he is able to enter into every arena. And there are Christians doing this today. In fact, there are quotes from non-Christian scientists who by their admission, don't believe in God, but they have said, there are quotes that you can find where they say, if anything, I would say science most certainly does not disprove God because of the things that they have seen and they have explored. There's one Christian scientist, he says, you know what, the reality is this, a little bit of science may lead you away from God, but a lot of science is going to lead you to him. Don't be ignorant. God can venture into all of these places and spaces. There's a man, his title was Lord. His name was Lord William Kelvin. He was noted for his theoretical work in thermodynamics and the concept of absolute zero, of which the Kelvin temperature scale is based on. He said this, I believe the more thoroughly science is studied, the further it takes us away from anything comparable to atheism. If you study science deep enough and long enough, it's going to almost force you to believe that there is a God. He all, uh, people have been putting God under a microscope for centuries, and he is not going anywhere. So I just want to say this. If you are here this morning, and you are thinking to yourself that you are tempted to walk away from God because you think intellectually, with reason and logic, Scripture and faith in Jesus Christ and God being the creator of the earth doesn't stand up to the scrutiny of science and the mind and wisdom, I want to tell you, you have been proved horribly wrong for centuries. I also want to tell you that I question that you are right because I doubt that you are smarter than the likes of C.S. Lewis, Blaise Pascal, Francis Collins, uh, Isaac Newton, J.R. Tolkien, William Lane Craig, Alvin Plantinga, or Johann Kepler, or I'll even add to the mix, Jesus Christ. If you think, hey, logically and reasonably, I'm going to walk away from Jesus because he just doesn't stand up to the scrutiny, that has been proven wrong time and time again, and I'm just going to go ahead and say it. I think the real reason you're walking away is because you don't want to acknowledge that you need a Savior, and you do not want to have to live your life for him. Our faith stands up to the scrutiny of all these things. In fact, I mentioned his name already, but there is one man who is doing this right now. His name is Francis Collins. He is one of our world's leading scientists and geneticists right now on the planet. He wrote a book called The Language of God, and the whole purpose of his book is to bring about harmony of faith and science. And he even started an organization called BioLogos. And its whole objective is to explore God's word and world to inspire authentic faith that sees scripture and science working hand in hand. Now, I haven't dived into every inch of his website, BioLogos, but I did at least read their doctrinal statement, and this man very much believes that God created the universe, that we are created in God's image, that Jesus Christ died for our sins, that the Holy Spirit is living and active, like he's got the main things, the main things, and this is what he is doing. True faith, like that which is spoken in scripture, is not blind and when we have faith like this, we can do and accomplish powerful and amazing things, but only 
if our faith is and remains sincere. Moving into verse 4, by faith Abel offered God a better sacrifice than Cain did. By faith, he was commended as a righteous man when God spoke well of his offerings. And by faith, he still speaks even though he's dead. So our author's done describing faith and things that we believe because of faith. And now he's shifting in to talking about examples of faith as we can see from the Old Testament. And he starts with Abel, right? Very discouraging. The first man who is... uh, called righteous for his relationship and faith and acts towards God, murdered very shortly after, right? Just very, very shortly after. But that's not the point here. Um, So if you're not familiar with the Old Testament reference, I'll explain quickly. So Adam and Eve leave the garden. They have two sons. They have Cain and Abel. Now Cain goes into agriculture. Nothing wrong with that. Abel goes into shepherding uh, or animal husbandry, as you might know it. And from what we can tell, they both are religious men, right? They both have some sense of relationship with God on some level. This is uh, revealed through Genesis, as we will see if you look at the passages Cain does have conversations with God. So it's not about that level of belief again, right? Once again, going back, it's not about just this cognitive awareness type of faith and belief. It is about their actions that we are concerned. And where we see the separation is when it comes time to worship and the offerings that they bring reveal the sincerity of their hearts. The story and throughout Scripture will reveal that what separates Cain and Abel, it has nothing to do with the physical things that they would bring. This wasn't a topic of meat versus vegetables. Besides, that's not even a conversation. We know who wins. It's meat every time. It is always meat. Meat is always better. I'll just say this. If you want to bring me an offering, if it's vegetables, I will frown on it. If it's bacon, I will smile. Um, but no, so that isn't the point though. The point isn't that is the posture of their hearts as they approach God. Even in the old Testament, we see it referring to the gift that Abel would bring. It says that he brings the first and the fattest. There is a moment where it acknowledges that he brings something that is the greatest that he has. And in contrast, we have Cain, where it just says he brings vegetables. Now, there's nothing wrong with vegetables. In fact, food and grain offerings later in the Old Testament would be very acceptable offerings to God. So if it's not that, what is it? It is the posture of his heart. It is that Abel came with a deep sacrifice and an awareness that even with this sacrifice, this doesn't do it. It is God's grace on me that is the ultimate reason that I can do this. And we get a sense from Cain that he comes forward and he goes, if I just bring this thing, if I just slide it in here, if I just put $10 on the offering plate, I'm good. No, it is never the act. It is always the posture of our hearts. This is the difference between Cain and Abel. Later on in Scripture, Jesus himself would go on in Matthew 23. He refers to Abel's blood as righteous from this act or from this offering. And also in the New Testament, we find out why and how bad Cain's heart was towards God. 
I mean, not only do we know how hard his heart was because eventually as he gets called on this, he turns around and murders his brother, okay? So the proof is right there. But later on in the New Testament, in the book of Jude, uh, when the book is talking about those who blaspheme the Holy One, it says that they walk in the way of Cain. And one of the worst ways we can ever blaspheme our God is to spit on the grace that he offers us by being ignorant enough to think that we could work or bring a gift greater than the death of his son. This is the difference between the two. Abel revealed sincere faith, though, and because of that, it says it still cries out from the ground, from the grave, and real sincere faith has that power. It has that power that beyond death to say, you've had no sting, and my testimony continues to carry on. Like, we are hopefully a little bit encouraged by Abel this morning, right? And he passed away thousands of years ago. And we can see this pattern in the Old Testament, even just looking at King David as an example. Did you know hundreds of years after King David was king, there would be moments that would arise for the Israelite people, and God would say, but because of my promise and because of my servant David, he would cease to do these things. I'll give you one example. 250 years after David was king, Isaiah would write it in a prophecy, quoting God speaking in Isaiah 37. He'd say, I will defend the city and save it for my sake and for the sake of my servant David. Sincere, real faith in Jesus and in God, walking step in step with him, has the power to impact lives far beyond the grave, even once we're gone. It can encourage and inspire like nothing else. I've actually experienced this on a very small scale in my own life. Uh, a number of years ago, I attended a funeral for a family member in Vancouver. And after everything had ended and after the graveside, my mom, dad, and I were walking around this massive cemetery. And I didn't know what we were doing. I didn't understand. But I knew my dad was like he was looking for something. I didn't know. And then I was so deeply impacted when we arrived at the tombstone or the headstone of a woman named Emma Groff. Her full name is actually, and I didn't know this, Emma Breitkreitz Groff. And it was the headstone of what I discovered, my great Oma. I didn't know that my great Oma had come over from Germany after and came with my Opa and Oma. I didn't know that she was buried in Vancouver. And I knew I came from a, a home of faith. I knew my parents were Christians. I knew my Oma and Opa were Christians. But I didn't know much beyond that. But on that day, I was so deeply moved to read John 3.16 on her headstone. And she spoke to me. I've never met her. I will one day in glory. But I had never met Emma Breitkreitz Groff, but the testimony of her love and dying in faith in Jesus Christ inspired me. And I think about it often. I think about the responsibility that I am going to have as a father and as a husband to carry on the lineage that she would have set with my great Opa, that they would have passed down to my Oma and Opa, that was passed to my parents, and that now sits on my shoulders. And I will not be the generation that that ends. Real, sincere, Faith can speak from the grave for generations. And not only that, real, sincere faith never has to taste death. 
I do not think it's a coincidence that our author, when writing, shifts now from talking about Abel dying for his faith to now mentioning Enoch, who because of his faith would never taste death. I absolutely love I was blown away by how seamlessly I feel this book was written. And I feel like our author, by combining these two, he's trying to, in a way, pull out a quote from Jesus in the New Testament where Jesus says, whoever obeys my words will never taste death. This is what we can see here. As now our author talks about Enoch in verse 5. By faith Enoch was taken from this life so that he did not experience death. He could not be found because God had taken him away. For before he was taken, he was commended as one who pleased God. If you're not familiar with the Enoch story, that's okay. Uh, the writers of scriptures tried to tuck it away unassumedly inside a genealogy of all things. Right? Many people never get that far. But that's where, and you know what? I will just, just to make sure we're aware, I'm going to read it because it is very short, the story of Enoch. This is, this is what we know from the Old Testament. And I want you to pay attention because it is interesting and it's worth noting that the Old Testament record of Enoch's life never mentions that he has a great faith in God. It never uses the word faith. It says he walks with him. But it doesn't mention faith, all right? So here at Genesis 5, this is the life of Enoch. When Enoch lived 65 years, he became the father of Methuselah. And after he became the father of Methuselah, Enoch walked with God 300 years and had other sons and daughters. Altogether, Enoch lived 365 years. Enoch walked with God, then he was no more because God took him away. So, as I mentioned... There's no mention of faith here. In fact, when I just read that story all by itself, there's really only one thing I get out of this whole story, right? I mean, yes, it's crazy that God just takes him, but the other thing that jumps out to me is this, is that it says Enoch lived 65 years. He became a father. Then Enoch walked with God for 300 years. 65 years, not a parent. He's like, I'm good has one kid, and he's like, God, I cannot do this without you, right? He's like, God, like a child just drove him into the arms of God. He's like, I can't, I can't, I'm, I'm hooped without you, Lord. That's the only thing I really gather from Enoch's life is our need for God if you have kids. I don't, so uh, anyways, but no, that is not the point. Genesis might not mention it, so why does our author mention that he must have this great faith? Well, clearly and obviously, it's because it tells us that he pleased God. For God to just draw him and bring him home, would that not insinuate that God was deeply pleased with this man who walked with him for 300 years? Absolutely. That leads right into that. You can believe that without assumption. And so that's why I love where our author goes next. That's why it flows into what our last passage this morning says in Hebrews 6, or chapter 11, verse 6. He says, and without faith... So this is talking about Enoch. It's like, oh, are you wondering why? Why was God so pleased with him? Well, here's why. Because without faith, it is impossible to please God because anyone who comes to him must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. The life of faith, another point, a life of faith always pleases God. 
a genuine, sincere, active life of faith always pleases God. When we trust God, we're saying, hey, I give you my life. I believe you. I acknowledge that your ways are higher than my ways, Lord. Putting our actual, sincere, genuine faith and belief in God is putting us in the position where we belong and him in the position and seat that he belongs in. And this pleases God. I feel like I said, like this is so encouraging after what happened to poor Abel, after he gets killed, then our author comes around, he says, no, but look what happened to Enoch, a man who lived and walked in faith, and this is just a picture and a vision of what God would then come, and something that you and I now have the confidence to believe that it might not happen the same way it did for Enoch, but I believe with all my heart, if you die with Christ as your foundation, you will not taste death. And I'm not going to attempt to understand how that works exactly, but I do believe I've seen it. I believe without a doubt in my mind, that day I stood in the hospital and held my mom's hand as she took her last breath, it might have looked like death to me, but it looked like life to her. This is what Scripture now tells us, and this is why we get a man killed and a man who never tastes death, because that is the reality for all Christians now. I love it. It's like the story is like, that's sad, but hey, you know what? Don't worry about Abel. He's going to be just fine, because this is the reality for those who die in faith. Romans 8, 38, 39. Nothing can ever separate us from God's love, neither death nor life, angels or demons, neither our fears for today or our worries about tomorrow. Not even the powers of hell can separate us from God's love. No power in the sky above or on the earth below. Indeed, nothing in all creation will ever be able to separate us from the love of God that is revealed in Christ Jesus our Lord. Real faith trusts God. Real faith pleases God. And real faith believes that he will reward those who earnestly seek him. Now I'm going to get ready to wrap up, and as I discuss our last uh, passage here, what I want to do, and I'm not cheating, I just genuinely think I couldn't say it better, I want to read uh, a segment from a sermon by Charles Spurgeon. I read a number of his sermon notes this last week, and this one just is so perfect for discussing uh, pleasing God, for discussing faith, and for discussing how, and I want you to really pay attention and listen for this, where he talks about how even in what might seem like our most feeble efforts to walk and stand for Jesus, the pleasure that that must bring our King. I love this sermon. So here we go. Charles Spurgeon says, The Lord is a rewarder of them that diligently seek him. That is not quite an exact translation of the passage, though. The Greek word doesn't just mean seek. It actually means seek him out until you find him and seek him above all others. We must seek and seek out until we really find. It is true life to live for God. It is glory to make him glorious among men. This is the best pursuit for us. In fact, it's the only one that can satisfy our hearts. It is great wealth to seek God, and it is happiness to be pleasing to him. 
And in the teeth of everything that happens in our lives, we hold on to him. We cannot begin to imagine the pleasure God must have when he sees us struggle against sin, battle against evil, enduring sorrow through a simple faith, and laboring daily to draw nearer and nearer to him. God is not displeased by those who, by faith, live to please him. Coming to God, however feebly we come, and seeking him, however much else we might miss, must be well and pleasing in his sight. But all this hangs upon faith. Without faith, there's no coming to God, no seeking of God, who is a rewarder. And therefore, without faith, it really is impossible to please God. I'm going to invite the worship team back up as we wrap up our service this morning, just highlighting a few of the things we touched on. Real faith. Real faith acts. Real faith is not blind. Real faith is sincere. Real faith pleases God. Real faith trusts and believes that he rewards those who seek him. There's so many more things that real faith does. Real faith grows. I firmly believe that with all my heart. As you live and you act, your real faith is going to grow. One of the ways real faith grows is through worship. And I hope that you will use this opportunity as we worship the Lord with our final song to really let your faith grow. Be reminded of who he is and whose you are. But I also just want to say this in closing as well. If you're here and you are someone, if you're listening and you are an individual who you feel like like maybe you have a hang-up, maybe there's something that you've thought or heard or been told, whether it be theologically, biblically, philosophically, scientifically, and you're like, I'm struggling to go deeper in my walk with the Lord because this thing seems like a hang-up. I want to encourage you, just like Spurgeon said, seek him, seek him, seek him, seek him until you find him. Venture into those areas, ask those questions. You will find answers. God is at the end of them, I promise you. I have zero doubt in my mind that he is not We can explore the depths of this world and even as science makes new discoveries, there has been no place. They've been trying for years to tell us that God is dead, but he's not. And I can't help but think that every time they get a new picture of a molecule, another picture of an atom, a different picture of space that we've never seen before, where they're hoping to prove one thing, I'm sure God is standing there and going, how do you like my glory from this angle? Our God is not dead. I want to encourage you to venture into those places and spaces. Leave him as your firm foundation. I believe this passage applies to science as well. He will never leave you nor forsake you. So if that is you this morning, maybe you need a little boost of faith to do, to ask those questions. Come, I want to invite you. I'm going to be up here. Come, have a chance. Come and pray with me. I want to pray with you, pray over you. But most importantly, I just want to say this. If you are a person, you could go out. You could be the smartest scientist. You could explore space beyond what anyone else has ever encountered in all of your life. But if you do, here's what I want you to know. That as you explore the foundations of this earth, may you never forget that from the foundations of that earth, God intended Jesus Christ to die for your sins. That everything you might look at, everything you might discover, was only ever a foundation left 
to lead you to the cross. That the greatest work those hands ever did was when they got pierced by nails and they bled for your sins. So if you're here this morning and you don't know that God, that God that not only brought the cosmos to life, but put skin on and died for you just so that you could freely come to know him, I also want to invite you to come. Come and pray with me. Take that first step. You have no idea what can happen with just a mustard seed of this type of real faith. Your life can change forever. I'm going to pray. We're going to worship. And feel free to come to the front. Heavenly Father, we love you and we thank you so much for who you are. And we thank you, Lord, that we can see you in every avenue, in every corner. Lord God, our God is not dead. He is a roaring lion and he reigns forever. Let us worship you with sincere hearts, giving you nothing other than the praise that you are due. In your name, amen. Thanks for listening to the podcast from Duncan Pentecostal Church, located here in Duncan, British Columbia, on beautiful Vancouver Island. At DPC, we believe in teaching the whole Bible to build whole believers who can impact the whole world. For more information about us, find us online at www.duncanchurch.com or find us on Facebook and YouTube by searching Duncan Pentecostal Church. Have a great day.